I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast contains sensitive topics and discussions. Listener discretion is advised. Known as the dog lady of Lansing Prison, this woman reinvented her life after finding herself in a mess of her own making. This is the Toby Door story. Hi, Megan. Hi, Aim. How are you? Excellent. I am so excited because I think after doing the research for this case, I think I'm changing my career. I'm still going to be a podcaster, but I think I'm ready to okay. leave academia and pursue a new passion. Okay. Well, I'm glad you're still going to be a podcaster, but I'm curious to hear what your new career is going to be and if there's a spot for me with you. <laughs> there's always a spot for you, Megan. I will be bringing you along with me. I actually came across this case while doing research for another case, and that often happens. And I stopped writing the other case and totally switched gears and went full throttle on this case. I just want to say that happens to you a lot. That does not happen to me as often. Like you start a case and you will find another one, drop the original and go, oh my gosh, I'm so jazzed about this one. So yeah, that's well, a thing for you. I have I have some... Um, attention deficit stuff going on. So for me, it's like I easily can find... that's true. Okay, gotcha. I can easily find side things and I go down these rabbit holes. But I was surprised that I never heard of this case because once I started learning about it, and of course I ordered the book, there's a memoir written by Toby. And not only did I read her book, I also spoke to her several times and her and I will be collaborating on various projects. Get out. I did not know that. I don't know her name either, so... Great. She she will be my new co-host. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. <laughs> okay. It's now Women in Crime with Amy and Toby. No. 
And also writing this case, you know that the love of my life, my dog, is named Toby. And this case has to do with dogs, and the woman's name is Toby, so don't get confused. Okay, I'll try not to. Now, Toby was born in 1958 in Kansas City, Kansas, and she was the oldest of seven children, and she would often help take care of her younger siblings. In fact, one of her siblings described her as a third parent. That's how involved she was in their lives. Wow. The family was middle class. They were devout Catholic. Her father was a mechanic and her mother was a stay-at-home mom. And this is typical for the time. Again, we're talking about the late 50s. And Toby was extremely close with both of her parents. And by all accounts, she had a wonderful childhood. And she discusses this in her memoir that I mentioned. I'll cite it at the end, but it's called Living with Conviction. She talks in particular about one event that really had an effect on her. You see, her father had a horrible accident when she was just five years old. And Toby witnessed her father suffer severe burns for which he spent over six months in a hospital recovering from his injuries. Oh my gosh, that's terrible. And this is where Toby would step up and really help her mother take care of the younger siblings. And I really love the way she tells the story about this time in her life because she flashes back to memories to show how those memories shaped her reactions to events and her overall experiences. I thought it was a pretty cool way to write a memoir. Sure. Anyway, despite this horrible accident and its effect on young Toby, she excelled in school and she was described as a rule follower and a perfectionist. She did what she needed to do and she was considered a good girl. By high school, she began dating and she ended up with a very serious boyfriend. And the two would stay together after graduation. And when she was 20 years old, he proposed to her. And she said yes. You know, she felt that this was the trajectory that her life should take. She came from a small town. They were religious. And it just seemed like that's what you do next. You get married. And so her and her husband bought a house right near her parents' home, which is right near where she had grown up. And soon after they got married, Toby went on to have three children in just four years. Unfortunately, though, their middle child, which was their only daughter, died a few hours after birth. And this is yet another tragic event that she describes in detail in her book. Yeah. And as we can all understand, this affected her greatly. Despite this tragedy, Toby lived a comfortable, typical middle class life. Her husband was a firefighter and she worked for a utility company. And she was a very involved mother in her two boys' lives. She never missed a single sports game and she was always there when they needed her. As the boys got older, she began attending college at night, and she double majored in accounting and business administration. At the age of 30, she graduated with her bachelor's and got a job soon after working for Sprint as a project manager in systems development. And she did really well there, and she enjoyed her work. However, despite being an excellent employee for 14 years, Toby was laid off in 2001. But she quickly found new work, and in fact, this work became her passion. She began working at a local vet clinic, and she loved animals, so this was a great fit for her. She would mostly answer phones and work the desk, but she was also asked to help prep animals for procedures, so she was very happy in this new position. In 2004, things would take a turn for Toby when she noticed a lump on her neck that turned out to be thyroid cancer. Luckily, the cancer was curable, and while it did require some intense treatments and downtime, she would make a full recovery and get back to work. However, the rest she needed to take during her recovery got her questioning what she should do with the rest of her life. Now, at this point, she was 47 years old and she felt that she needed to do something that would help make the world a better place, which I think working with animals does just that, but she wanted more. Got it. Now, while she recuperated, she spent a lot of time watching TV and one show in particular made a mark on her. 
This show is a reality program that showcased dogs who received training at various correctional facilities. And it was called the Pound Puppy Program. How cute is that? Pound puppies were the cutest thing ever. Megan, you didn't have a pound puppy? Nope. What the hell is a pound puppy? What? Are you kidding? I'm sorry. No, I really... I- pound puppies are like Cabbage Patch Kids, but they're like little dogs. And they're, they were so cute. They came in like little ones and big ones. And they had like... They so remember name? how like I didn't watch like TV for kids and stuff. I didn't really have a lot of stuffed <laughs> animals either. I wasn't into that. I did have a cabbage patch kit, just to be clear. All right. Well, in this program, prison inmates were given 12 weeks to train and socialize untamed and quote unruly shelter dogs to make them adoptable. Now, the inmates would teach the dogs basic commands, and they were also able to keep the dogs with them in their cells for socialization. And on this particular reality show, there was a different facility each week. Megan, you remember when I worked at the women's prison, they had a program like this. Yeah, this has become more common now, pets in prison and for training. Mm -hmm. And in Direct Appeal Season 2, Ryan Widmer also trains dogs, if you recall. Oh, I didn't remember that. Yeah, he has a different dog with him every several months. And it's so interesting. So when I would teach, some of my students would bring their pups to class. Let me tell you, there's nothing more distracting than a beautiful baby black lab who just wants to play the whole time. Well, and you are highly distracted by dogs. So I can't imagine. I don't know how you would get through a (laughs) class with the dogs there. But I have to tell you something interesting that I learned from my students who are part of the program. Well, they said it was a great program because, as we know, the love of a dog is like no other. You know, it kind of like changes the whole feeling in the facility because it just softens everyone having this dog around. Yes. But after growing like such a close bond, these dogs would be taken from them and they would never see them again. And I feel like that's so hard. No, I agree. That's probably really hard, but it does a lot of positive things and realize they are being trained for a purpose. They are going to move on. They're going to find permanent homes. And it's like, you know, it's like fostering. Yeah, it is. I know. I think it has so many net positive benefits for both prisoners and the dogs. They get this great training. They start off with Mm -hmm. someone who really cares and then they go on to a very like stable long-term home. So uh, I'm okay with it. Yeah, I just think it's hard, especially for my students who were incarcerated for decades. It's like you finally have a bond to something and, you know, yeah, it's getting taken away. But I, I agree. I think the benefits outweigh. I asked Ryan about that because I had the same question. Like, and he's he's like, yeah, I mean, it kind of it's kind of sad. He's like, but you know what? You go on to get another dog and do another training. He's like, you know, it's like a continual process. Mm-hmm. So there's something to look forward to and feel proud about. So I think it's probably, again, more benefit than the other. And, you know, there are different programs. Some programs like this one in particular was training dogs so that they could be adopted. Yes. But the program that was at the women's prison in New Jersey, some of them were training dogs to become like bomb sniffing dogs or Mm -hmm. or service dogs. So there's all different reasons why there's different programs and different ways these dogs are trained. Sure. I know that you've seen pit bulls and parolees, though. That I have seen. Yes. Okay. There are so many of these programs, and I think they're incredible, and they have shown to have great success both with institutional behavior and reentry. Yes. So I think they're great. Well, because the other side benefit is that often in these prisons with the programs, the handlers, the prisoners get a certification so that when they leave prison, they can also use that in the real world then as a, as a life skill and uh, for jobs. Yep. There's many benefits. So anyway, this show got Toby thinking. You know, as I said, she loved animals and Kansas didn't yet have this type of program in their prisons. So she was thinking maybe she could start her own version in her own state. And she felt that this would be an amazing way for her to give back to her community. Just what she was looking for. Yeah. 
When she fully recovered from her cancer, she got to work starting a dog fostering program. And her first contact was with someone at the Lansing Correctional Facility, which is a state prison in Leavenworth County, Kansas. And they were willing to let Toby pilot her foster program at their facility. What year was this, Amy? Uh, This was in 2004. Okay. Within just a few days of Toby making contact on August 13th, 2004, she brought seven shelter dogs into the prison and she began her new business, the Safe Harbor Prison Dog Program. Now, just like any other programming, inmates had to qualify. They had to have good behavior. And I'm not sure exactly what other stipulations, but I would imagine that the warden had some say in who got to participate in these types of programs. Sure. And just like the pound puppy program that Toby had seen on TV, these dogs were allowed to stay in the cells with their new handlers. And with Toby's guidance, inmates trained the dogs and would help to socialize them for adoption eligibility. So cool. And Toby noticed, as we've also mentioned, that this program changed the whole atmosphere in the prison. As Toby says, anyone who wanted to could just come up and pet a dog, and it just softened everyone up. Yep. Megan, dogs weren't just in the cells. They had dogs hanging around in the yard, dogs walking down the hallways with their handlers. So in general, it just brought this positive vibe to the facility. Yes. In fact, the program got so popular that Toby quit her job working at the vet clinic, and she turned a barn behind her home into a kennel where she would be able to bring in more dogs for more inmates. Toby would spend her days organizing adoptions, shuttling dogs back and forth to vet clinics for spaying and neutering. And she did long days in the prisons working with inmates. Sometimes she would be in the prisons over 10 hours a day. And essentially, this became her life. And this was a dream for Toby. She was loving what she was doing. And the success of the Safe Harbor Prison Dogs program also made Toby somewhat of a local celebrity. She was often interviewed by the media, and the attention garnered a lot of donations from her community. In fact, Megan, in 18 months, she was able to facilitate over a thousand adoptions. Wow. Yeah. So she was doing some great things for the community. Amy, when you said you found your new job, I assume this is it, your new profession that you're moving into. (laughs) Yeah, I just need to get certified in dog handling and I'll be well on my way. Okay. And like I said, you're coming with me. Yep. Sure am. So things are going great for Toby professionally. But personally, she was having some marital issues. The attention she was getting from the community, her dogs, and the inmate handlers made her realize that she wasn't feeling appreciated or loved at home. She says that she realized that she had been in an unhappy marriage for years and it was starting to weigh on her. Mm. And maybe because of this dissatisfaction with her marriage, there was an inmate handler that caught Toby's attention. Yeah, I had a feeling we were going in this direction, even though I didn't know the case per se. But there have been a couple other cases like this one as well. But this one takes some interesting turns. Okay. Now, this inmate's name was John Maynard. And although he was only 25 to Toby's 47, Toby liked the attention that John gave her. And she also felt that he did a great job with the dogs and that he was very redeemable. What was John in prison for? So John had actually only been 17 at the time of his crime, which is a juvenile, but he was sentenced as an adult and Mm -hmm. he was serving a life sentence for his participation in a carjacking that resulted in a man getting fatally shot. So felony murder, basically. Now, because somebody had died during the commission of a felony that John had part in, he was convicted of first degree murder. Now, this is not unlike the felony murder cases and the accomplice liability cases that we often see in New Jersey. John was also a protector for Toby. In particular, there was an instance where she was being harassed by another inmate and John stood up for her. After this particular situation, the warden had John become Toby's personal escort whenever she came to the facility. 
So the two were spending a lot of time together. Through this new escort position, John and Toby became extremely close. Though they never actually crossed the line into physical intimacy, a line was clearly being crossed. So much so that Toby snuck a smartphone into John's cell so that the two could talk when she was not there. Now, we know that this is not allowed. A cell phone is considered contraband in a prison, and that is a federal offense. Oh, wait. It's a federal offense? You didn't know that? No. Bringing contraband into a prison? So if anyone helps an inmate get any prohibited item into a prison or a jail, there are consequences at both the state and the federal level. So this is a serious action that Toby is taking part in. Wow. And these two, and they would talk for over 200 hours in just a few weeks. Wow. I'm shocked that nobody, I I guess he had a single cell. I I don't know for sure, but I would imagine he had a single cell. But it's also amazing that he would be able to get away with over 200 hours in just a few weeks with nobody suspecting anything. Yeah. Makes me wonder if he was paying off anyone or if anyone else knew. Or he's just a, you know, a smart offender who knows how to, yep. you know, get things, knows how to kind of work it in there. You, you learn, you know, mm-hmm. there's there's yep. routines. In their many hours of phone conversations, John asked Toby if she would be with him if he were not in prison. And she answered saying she believes she would. After hearing this, John told her he loved her and he wanted to be with her. And he even suggested that Toby help him escape so the two can be together. At first, Toby thought he was just joking around and that his talking about different possible scenarios was just wishful thinking. But Megan, the more they talked about this plan and the various scenarios, the more these thoughts were turning into an actual plan. And when one of the prison's unit leaders asked Toby to remove some old equipment that had been sitting around, What kind of equipment would Toby, why would she be moving equipment? Good question. This was dog bowls, leashes, and most importantly, a big wire dog crate. Now, John and Toby solidified an escape route. The plan was that Toby would get a large box to put the bowls and leashes in. And not only would they put the bowls and leashes in the box, but they would put John in the box as well. And then the box would be put inside the large dog crate. And then that dog crate would be loaded into Toby's van. And this would be along with some of the dogs that she would be taking to an adoption event that day. Now, this was all typical behavior for Toby. So they believed it wouldn't raise any alarms. Now I remember the story. You do? I remember the dog crate. Mm. Yeah, now I do. It took me a while. The names, no, but I remember the escape in the dog crate. So, okay. So now you know why she was called the dog lady. So she was the dog lady even before this because she was bringing in the dogs. But So in preparation for their big plan, Toby took more than $40,000 out of her 401k, Mm -hmm. and she also bought a used truck for $5,000. Meanwhile, John worked on losing weight, and this would be, I'm assuming, so that the box wouldn't seem overly heavy when it was moved and maybe just so he would actually fit in the box. You know, he was a very tall guy. Okay. February 12th of 2006 was a frigid Sunday morning as Toby parked her newly purchased truck in a storage unit that was somewhere between her home and the prison. Now, importantly, the storage facility was brand new, and because of that, no cameras had yet been installed. She also went to Walmart to purchase some men's clothes and various foods. I frequently say to James, I'm not sure why every person who offends goes to Walmart for whatever the item is. It's clothes. It's a shovel. It's tape. It's like, I would say so many people are caught on Walmart tapes. Mm -hmm. Go somewhere else. (laughs) 
Um, I also wanted to comment or question, and I'm sure you'll talk about this later, but I understand that she's now in this planning an escape with him because, you know, she also is not happy at home. But what about her children? She's leaving her children, too. Are they grown at this time? Yes. So I'm just curious because I could I could see one. Th- it's one thing to leave your spouse, but your children. Her children are older at this point. Okay. I don't know exactly how old, either late high school or in college. Okay. But they are older. They're they're no longer babies. Okay. But, you know, Toby says she almost got cold feet a few times, and she really thought maybe this wasn't going to happen. There's no way this could actually happen. But John was able to get into the box without being seen, and he was loaded into Toby's van along with all of the other equipment and dogs that were ready for adoption. Wow. Now, unbeknownst to the inmates who moved all of Toby's equipment, they had just let one of their fellow prisoners escape into Toby's truck. Now, I find this hard to believe that no other inmates knew. I think it's very likely that at least one inmate who was helping load must have known. I mean, this was a grown man. He must have been close to 200 pounds. How, how do you not realize how heavy that box is? Well, there's a few things. First, you said that he was never really detected with the cell phone. So maybe he really is just very clever. Perhaps it's not even just loading the boxes. Like I'm thinking, did they have, um, you know, what is it? You're not loading by hand. What's the thing that you put under oh. the, like a hand truck or whatnot? Yeah, that's true. You know, like a dolly or something like that that they're mm-hmm. loading the boxes onto. It could also be that Toby was smart about saying, hey, sorry, this is some really heavy stuff. I've got yeah. like explaining why a box would yeah. be heavy, what equipment is in there. I think it's possible that someone knew. But also, I don't know that you would want to share that at all unless you absolutely needed someone's assistance uh, for a prison yeah. escape. Because realizing that that could get around quickly, I would think that I would think probably someone didn't know in this case, but I could be wrong. Yeah. And that's one of the questions I could ask Toby. That's one of the nice parts about having this open line of communication is I was able to call Toby and ask her some questions as I was writing the episode. But of course, as we're talking about it now, I'm thinking of other ones that I'm going to have to go back and ask. All right. So now Toby has all of the equipment in her trunk, not knowing at this point if John was among the the equipment. Right. Yeah, she didn't know at this point. She just started driving to the storage facility as planned. And this is where she says on the way, John popped out of a box and surprised her. And she realized like, oh, wow, this is actually happening. Wow. She backed in to the storage facility, let John out, and then they left the van in the storage facility, got in the new truck and drove away, ready to start their new life together on the run. Now, first, they would have to go to Toby's home, though, because remember, she did have dogs with her and she loves dogs. She's not going to abandon these dogs. So they went back to the home to drop the dogs off in her barn. And this is where John would take possession of two handguns from Toby's home. I'm sure that wasn't part of the plan. Also, I, I'm one other thing I'm surprised about is that she would leave the career, the, the meaning that she found. This is, you know, this is just sh- short-term thinking. This is not long-term planning, so. Yes, and save that part for the discussion because okay. I am curious what you think about the psychology of a lot of okay. this. Okay. So as part of their plan, John had rented a lakeside cabin in Tennessee under a false name, and this was using the cell phone Toby had given him while he was incarcerated still. The pair would head to the cabin to lay low, and they would try to stay off highways as much as possible to avoid detection. Now, it took several hours to get to Tennessee. But they got there without being caught, and they spent several days together enjoying their new relationship. However, things began to feel questionable to Toby almost right away. First off, 
as I mentioned, John had taken the two guns from her home. Now, he had convinced her to do so, saying that he needed them for protection since they would be carrying around so much cash. Remember, Toby had $40,000 in cash. Right. And once they got to the cabin, John took possession of not only the cash, but the two guns as well. Oof. Toby also began to notice that John had a temper. And in the two weeks that they stayed at the cabin, she would go between feeling trapped and a little afraid of John, but also in love with him at the same time. Well, look, she has this idea of of what it is. She has, a, a, you know, kind of a romanticized, idyllic idea, and she's trying to hold on to that. But in reality, it's not what it seems. But to have to believe that she did the right thing, she has to hold on to this love. You know what I mean? Otherwise, yeah. oh, my gosh, she's just committed a, a crime, a serious crime. For nothing. Yeah. Exactly. So I think she had to hold on to the notion of this is love. This is real. I did the right thing. Mm-hmm. I think you're absolutely right. Around 12 days after the escape, staying in the cabin began to feel a bit stifling and the couple wanted to get out. Actually, John's the one who really wanted to go out and live life. You know, he's a young guy. He's been incarcerated for a decade and he wanted to get out there. Yeah. So he talked Toby into going to see a movie. And as you may be able to guess, this would turn out to be a pretty bad idea. Sure. How far away was this? They were in Tennessee okay. and they came from Kansas. So so they were in Tennessee and they came from Kansas, but I'm sure they were all over the news. So, Oh, they were. They were all over the news. But okay. these two were, you know, they were keeping a low profile and they thought that they were getting away with it. However, on their way back from the movie theater, they noticed sirens were following them. Wow. This is when John decided rather than pulling over, he was going to try to outrun the several police cars that were following him. Right. So this would lead to a high-speed police chase, and as it usually does, it ended in John crashing the truck. Now, luckily, the couple didn't sustain any injuries, but their time together was surely over. They were both arrested on the spot, and that would be the last time that they would see each other. You're going to tell us how the police found them or were on to them, right? Good question. So... I'm not exactly sure because some reports say that there was a spotting or a tip that was called in, maybe someone who saw them at the movies. But I also learned that Toby had registered the car to the cabin address where they were staying. So I would imagine that investigators were already surveilling the cabin and the area. And then maybe someone called in a tip and that kind of was the catalyst. Sure. Okay. Okay. So these two are, you know, they're taken in and Toby is charged with aiding and abetting aggravated escape taking contraband into a prison and providing firearms to a felon. Not great. These are hefty charges. Hefty charges. But she owned up to it and she pled guilty and she was sentenced to 27 months. Now, this was the highest allowed by guidelines, which I was surprised by. You know, she was charged both federal and state at the same time, and she was able to serve her sentences concurrently. Now, this is not always the case, but usually this is the case because it saves resources. I'm going to assume because these cases were concurrent, they're federal and state. I bet the federal government subsumed both cases because when you say guidelines also, I typically think of the uh, U.S. sentencing guidelines that were in effect at the time. 27 months seems very reasonable for the crimes that she committed, even taking responsibility. These are quite serious crimes. Yep. It sounds a little low to me on the guideline scale, but I wonder if, you know, that was part of the plea, reducing the charges. 
Yeah, I would think so, because it sounded low to me as well. But maybe they took into account that she didn't have a criminal history. And like we said, she was cooperating. And the guidelines do take that into account. When you actually calculate guidelines, you're using the offense and the criminal history. So she had zero criminal history, which would play well for her. But still sounds low. So I would just assume she got a little bit lower as part of the plea deal. I would also think, given the trust that was put into her by the system, that they would throw the book at her because it's like when a police officer commits a crime, like they're held to a different standard. And although she was just a civilian going into a facility, she still like violated a level of trust that the system was giving her. Sure. So John is already doing life. So I just assume now he's going to do a more restricted sentence in like a supermax or just, you know, more solitary. What happened with Mm -hmm. him? I was surprised, but he was returned to Lansing prison, but he did have 10 years added to his sentence, which, of course, doesn't mean much given that he was already serving a life sentence. But the reason in doing that is because if that original case was overturned on appeal, he would still have the 10 years from this crime. He's still in a maximum facility. So, I mean, that makes sense. Now, John wasn't supposed to communicate with Toby. That would make sense, right? But, of course... He figured out a way to do so. He figured out where she was and he would write to other inmates and ask those inmates to give her notes. Really? He would also send her drawings and song lyrics and letters describing his love for her. How was she feeling at this point? So, you know, she did communicate with him for a little bit because, you know, she did love him. But she says she ended things with him because she realized that their relationship wasn't going to last and she really needed to start fresh and really put this behind her. Yeah. And in her memoir, you know, she talks about this. And now Toby spent time in state prison and federal prison, along with jails in both systems. Okay. So I find her memoir very interesting because you can see the differences of, you know, among the facilities. And she talks a lot about all the relationships that she made with other inmates while she was incarcerated. Oh, okay. And she would spend all she would spend a lot of her time crafting and writing. Uh-huh. And she made some really close friends. Do you want to hear a fun fact? Okay. Yeah. Always. So she made one particular friend, and this is a woman who is infamous. And we talked about her before. Tell me what prison and see if I can figure it out. Okay, I'm going to tell you what prison it was, but I'm also going to tell you where we discussed the case. Okay. So this is going to be two hints. Okay. So these two ladies met at a prison in Leavenworth, Kansas. Okay. And we spoke about this woman when we spoke with Maggie Freeling one time on, I believe it was one of her live shows or one of her Patreon events. (sighs) This was at the beginning this was like a way beginning of our oh, podcasting I career. I don't even know if we did Women in Crime. It might have just been when we did Direct Appeal. Leavenworth in the 2000s with Maggie. Wait, no, I'm going to give you one more hint because right. you might you might get it. And if not, then I'm just going to tell you. But All right. This, the reason why this woman is so infamous is because she was the only woman on federal death row. And she was the first female prisoner to be put to death by the U.S. government since 1953. This is when she was executed in January of 2021. I know exactly what it is, but the name escapes me. So, okay. wah, wah. All right. Lisa Montgomery. Yep, I, I knew exactly who it was, but I, I could picture yes. her face. But Now, for those of you who don't know the story, Lisa Montgomery, as I mentioned, she was executed and she was the first woman to be executed in over 70 years by the federal government. She had committed a very heinous crime. Mm-hmm. She murdered Bobby Joe Stinnett mm-hmm. and... Um, stole her unborn child and tried to pass the baby off as her own. So this was a particularly heinous crime. Yes. But what I love about Toby's memoir is she talks about Lisa as a human despite the heinous crimes that she committed. 
And you know that I feel very similar because through my work in prisons, I have met many people that have committed heinous crimes. But sometimes it's hard to believe that the person you know was capable of such an awful act. So, you know, I very much believe that people are redeemable and they're more than, you know, the worst things that they have done. Yeah. So Toby doesn't talk about the heinous crimes that Lisa committed at all in her book. I just knew because I knew of the case. Of course. She just talks about her friend Lisa. Yes. Now, don't get me wrong. Lisa committed a very heinous crime and Bobby Jostin is very much a victim in that case. And gosh, yeah, it was awful. I, I don't want to get too much into it, but I also remember Lisa Montgomery had an awful, awful childhood and background. And I remember yes. how terrible it was. And I remember even thinking I believed mm-hmm. that she should have been incarcerated for life hands down, but I wasn't yes. really in favor of the death penalty for her. Anyway, I digress. I agree. There was also a lot of question about her mental stability yeah. and there was MRIs yeah. performed that yeah. show that she had some brain injuries. And right. But anyway, we're talking about Toby. Yes. So Toby served her sentence without any incident. And when her sentence was over, she moved in with her mother and things were hard for her. I mean, oh, yeah. As with anyone returning to society, they're hard. But for Toby, a lot of her family would no longer talk to her. Most importantly, her two sons were extremely angry with her and refused to have any contact with her. Well, I mean, you can't blame them at all. You can't. I don't blame them. She did have a brother, one or two brothers who would talk to her and stand by her. But her sisters were extremely angry with her. Her ex-husband wouldn't talk to her. And most importantly her children. And so when she first got out, she moved to Kansas City with her mom, where she was from. But everyone knew what she had done, and she felt very uncomfortable going out in public. So she decided that she needed to move to some place where she'd be a bit more obscure. And she would end up moving to Boston for a web design job. Now, this didn't work out for her. There were some issues with the job. I don't need to get into it. But she did meet a very special man during her time in Boston, a man by the name of Chris who would go on to become her husband. Oh, So although the job didn't work out, it was definitely the right move for her. So she ended up moving back to Kansas City. And tragically, her son was diagnosed with leukemia and passed away in 2008. It's terrible. Now, unfortunately, the two were not able to have a relationship. He didn't want a relationship, but she was able to see him during his last few days. Mm. So she talks about being able to at least say goodbye to him, but... It sounds like it was a very, very difficult situation. Yeah. The year following her son's tragic, untimely death, Toby did marry Chris. And I was very surprised to hear this, but Chris encouraged her to reach out to John. And Chris and Toby went to visit John in prison. Now, the part that I was the most surprised about was that the facility allowed Toby in to visit with John. Isn't that shocking? I I was going to point that out as well. Why did Chris encourage her to, did he want her to mend, you know, put this to bed and and kind of, would this be closure for them? And that's why he wanted her to? Otherwise, I don't get it. I do believe it was foreclosure. And again, this is another one of those areas I would love to talk to Toby more about. Okay. I just simply didn't have time to ask her all the questions I had, but I would be interested in how hard was it to get clearance to see John in prison and also... What was the purpose? Again, I believe it was closure, but we'll have to ask Toby exactly why her and Chris felt that they wanted to do that. Mm -hmm. Toby's time in prison gave her a different perspective on the lives of inmates, particularly female ones. And now she found a new passion and a new mission, and that is to help other women who are incarcerated. Okay. 
So Toby's now a motivational speaker and an author. She creates workbooks that help female inmates process their feelings and circumstances. And she says she wants to help break the destructive cycles that put these women behind bars to begin with. Now, if you go to her website, Toby Door, you can see her books and her programs. And you could also read more about her story. But she talks to women. She also has a podcast called Fierce Conversations with Toby. And that's where she talks to different people. As she says, she's tackling hard conversations with love and inspiration. So it's all about transformation and inspiring women to do better and break out of, you know, cycles that have been holding them back in the past. And you know who she had on there? A man by the name of Justin Brooks, who is the head of the California. Well, he was the head of the California Innocence Project. Yeah. And he did a lot of work on Joanne Park's case. Yes. The kind of work he does is simply amazing. Um, So that was kind of a cool conversation to listen to. Okay, Megan, as we wind down here, why did Toby do it? Well, we could ask her, right? We don't need to speculate. I was going to say, why didn't um, you just ask her? (laughs) (laughs) But I want to talk about it more from, you know, a theoretical perspective. Do you see any of the traditional criminological theories at play here that can help us understand what Toby did? Or do you think maybe victimization theories are more suitable here? What do we think? Well, look, I think, you know, she finds herself in a situation where she's not in a happy marriage anymore. And so she finds herself spending more and more time with certain people, uh, becoming close with them. You know, it's kind of a fantasy life. It's an escape life. It's also it's a fantasy and an escape in that, you know, you think you're forming a meaningful relationship. But, you know, it's really not when you have this the type of situation under which their relationship formed. Hybristophilia. I don't know if you've heard of hybristophilia. I some I might have covered it before. It's possible there's some of that. You know, this is a phenomenon whereby usually females, but it can be men, are attracted to of offenders. You know, there's kind of the danger element here. You've seen these about you know the shows about women who fall in love with men who are in prison for very serious crimes. There could be some of that syndrome, like hybristophilia, going on here, whereby she's falling in love with someone who's a little more dangerous, a little more dominant, a little darker, you know. So I think that's a possibility. What do you think? I do believe that they loved each other, but I do believe that she was looking for something. And unfortunately, maybe John saw the vulnerability. And I do believe he eventually did fall in love with her. But I think at first he just saw a woman who was potentially vulnerable that he could take advantage of. But I do believe that it probably morphed into a real relationship. I wonder if it's real love, though. I guess that's my question. Is it real love or a delusion of real love? And that's what I mean. I don't know. Because if you create it in the situation they did, it almost seems kind of fantasy-like. Even the escape and her not realizing, wow, this is really happening. It's excitement in an otherwise unexciting life. So I just wonder if it was real or, you know, in looking back, would she think this was still real love or would she think like Mm -hmm. she thought it was, I guess would be my curiosity. So I I did read an interview with John and he says he was very much in love with Toby. Okay. I believe Toby says the same. So situationally, I can believe John was. But here's the thing you have to realize. If it wasn't Toby, let's say it was Amy or someone else in that situation that he formed a relationship with, the only female that he has access to pretty much Mm -hmm. and has time to spend with, would he have fallen in love with someone given the circumstances? That's why I'm saying I'm not sure if it's And it could be something about Toby or it could be just something about making a connection with a female who's paying attention to him and he's young. Yep. So I'm not sure. Again, I don't I don't know that this is real love or just confusion for real love or just the need for some affection, you know, 
lacking those bonds. They both kind of lack, it seems like, the affection or love that they needed. And so they gravitated towards each other. I think that's a fair assessment. Did the system get it right? I guess so. I mean, Toby, some would say 27 months is not long enough for the types of crime that she committed, but she was a model inmate and she's also doing great work now that she's out of prison. So she's someone that clearly has been, I guess you could say, rehabilitated or is now giving back to society in some way. Did she get 27 months or did she get out in 27 months? Because if she got 27 months, that likely means she got out in less than two years. Whether it's a little under two years, a little over two years, she sounds like she's done wonderful things. I'm just going to go ahead and probably say the unpopular thing. I do not think that was punishment enough for the crime she committed. You know, the, the, I think the crimes she committed were much more serious than that. So I don't think the punishment is actually proportionate to the crime. Mm-hmm. I don't think she should have been incarcerated for the rest of her life, but I would have liked to see more of a five-year sentence, to be frank. Interesting. Okay. And yes, I did confirm she did serve 27 months. Okay. Look, I'm okay with it. I'm not utterly offended. But if you ask me what fair justice is, I think that was a little bit light for the crime that she committed. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, everyone's entitled to their own opinion. I'm sure some people would agree with you. But regardless, I think, you know, John's where he needs to be. And I think Toby's doing, you know, Toby's doing some good work out here. And as someone who is what, so it's called a civilian, anyone who goes into the correctional facility who's not working there, they call you a civilian. Mm -hmm. So as someone who is a civilian who goes into a prison, you know, it had me thinking about this because a warden of any correctional facility, they need to consider, it's like a balancing act Mm -hmm. because we know that there are many benefits of prison programming, Mm -hmm. but we also know the more civilians that you allow inside a prison, the more risk you are taking. Yes. So obviously this is an extreme example of a civilian doing something very harmful in a correctional facility. But there are many cases of lesser offenses that we have heard over the years, whether it be bringing in contraband or having some sort of relationship that crosses a line. I'd like to say that I'm, I'm so glad to hear that. I really am glad to hear that she came out with a new purpose and that she's helping others. I also believe that a woman like Toby, you know, she had no criminal history. She gets caught once doing these things. She'll never offend in any way again. I would find it hard to believe that she would offend against society again. So I think this is, you know, a great case of redemption as well and giving back. And you're you're right, Amy. People are redeemable, you know. And Toby said she wants to come to FDU to talk to our students. So I think that's pretty cool. So she lives in D.C. now. So it's not too long. Yeah, it's not too far of a train ride for her. So we'll be talking about that in the future. We need to host an event with her. That would be amazing. Right? Wouldn't that be cool? Yes, it would. I'm so grateful for Toby for speaking to me. You know, a lot of times when I cover cases of people who are just out there in the world, I like to contact them. It feels weird to tell someone's story if they're available to tell it. Sure. But Toby was really, you know, she was amazing to talk to and she had no problem with me telling her story. And she was just so gracious with her time. And I really appreciate it. Wonderful. And I can't wait to see her at FDU. Yes. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I know I did because I have my new career now. Yes, me too. And we'll be joining. Yes. (laughs) Great. Uh, Megan, before we go today, though, we do have a question from one of our supporters. Yes, we have a question today. And I think this question is probably better for you, Amy, but I will leave it to you. So here it is. Our question is, are there reintegration programs for people leaving prison? And do you think they can help reduce recidivism? Yes, actually, I teach a whole class on reentry and reintegration. And there are many different programs, both locally ran, state ran and run on the federal level. 
The only thing I would add to the conversation is that it's very important to also have in-prison programming Mm -hmm. because while reentry programming is important, it's also important to build the foundation for success before one even leaves prison at all. So yes, I think these programs are extremely effective. Not every program, some are more effective than others. I can tell you that the program that I teach for is very highly effective. The vast majority of people who leave prison after participating in the program are successful and many end up going on for their master's and other advanced degrees in the field. Yeah. I mean, we definitely know that meaningful educational programs and real job opportunities are really key in Mm -hmm. reducing recidivism. Yes. And just to add on to that, it's important that job training mirrors the job market. Yes. Because there are times where prisons will offer programming with jobs that are not relevant for, you know, what today's needs are. So it is very important that the programs are implemented correctly and they are geared towards what the person actually needs. Also, family reunification programs are very successful, both, again, before one leaves the prison mm-hmm. and also upon reentry. You know, I love that question because yes. that's that's my area right there. So thank you very much for that question. Yes. Thank you for such a great question and for a great case today, Amy. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you so much for listening. And we will catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include tobydoor.com, The Atlantic, The New York Post, and Living with Conviction by Toby Doerr. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.